This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. On this program, Debbie Millman talks with writer Margaret Roach about her career working with Martha Stewart, about her love affair with her garden, and about the importance of stepping back from our busy lives. Silence and complete stillness are so undervalued in our contemporary society. Here's Debbie Millman. In an age of global warming and species extinction, our culture has become intensely interested in sustainability. This trend has extended to food, with concerns about obesity and healthy eating now front page news. All of these topics converge on gardening, which has taken off as a passionate hobby as never before. Chronicling that wave and inspiring it along is Margaret Roach. Margaret is a writer who worked for the New York Times, Newsday, and was the gardening editor for Martha Stewart Living magazine before taking on the life of a solitary gardener. Welcome to Design Matters, Margaret. Nice to be here and finally meet you. Yes, nice to meet you too. The first thing I want to ask you about is your Girl Scout sash from Troop 4334, (laughs) folded away with your table linens in your sideboard. Why have you kept it? I kept it first because my mother threw out everything else, and there was very little left of my childhood. She got rid of my beloved trolls and my Barbies. And the sash was breaking. Yeah. And the sash was one of the few things that she didn't get rid of. But also because it every time I see it, and I do I don't wear it around the house, but I do take it out from time to time and look at it, the badges make me laugh and remember how I was at that time. I was a Girl Scout until well into my teens, all the way through seniors and so forth. And there were badges on there for things that I still can't do. <laughs> so it kind of is just, it's, it's, a, it's funny recollections, poignant. <laughs> so I still happen to have not my sash, which I am terribly heartbroken over, but I do have two of the pins that went on uh-huh. the sash. So I, have I had those the, mm-hmm. the Girl Scout. The trefoil. Um, the trefoil mm-hmm. and also the signal with the, with the yes, hand signal. Yes, that's hand from signal. Brownies, That's I from think. Brownies. Yes. So I have both of so those. So you were a long timer, too. Yes, I was. Oh, yes, I boy. was. We could give a, have a self-help group for <laughs> women who survived long stints. <laughs> now, and... and I don't wear them around the house either, uh-huh. but every now and then I do take them out and look at them. And yeah. I'm wondering, why do you think we do that? What is it that resonates in these items that we've kept for so many years and still feel kinship toward? I can only speak from my own, you know, generation and my own experience. Well, we're the same, but we're for, the same yeah, generation. And for, for me, it was, um, I think it was that women's roles were really changing then and um, Girl Scouts and Brownies and so forth. You could think of it as a throwback to the old-fashioned way of raising women, young women. Or you could think of it as sort of positive because it was about empowerment and being able to do things. And it was also put groups of girls together and ask them to collaborate and to be a team, which, of course, is a more modern kind of a thing, right, than than, than old-fashioned way of raising women. So for me, I think it has a, this special appeal because 
it really reminds me of one of the first times that I was ever in that kind of a group setting, cooperating, collaborating, being on a team with other females. You were together, you were collaborating, and those were skills I think that I still use. I mean, as silly as that sounds. No, it doesn't sound silly (laughs) at all. I read that you said that there was little hope of escaping a career in the world of words being born to a couple of journalists who also love to read. So, So can you talk a little bit about how that inspired you to become a writer? Well, in my family, everybody, my father was the sports editor at the Times for many, many years. And my mother was, a, before we were born, she was a, an editor at what was called the Long Island Star Journal, a newspaper in those days. And whenever they were talking to you or on the phone especially, you'd see them or talking with someone about anything, they always were taking notes. Do you know what I mean? They couldn't really talk without writing stuff down Uh because they were both such journalists. So I grew up doing that. You know, if I want to remember something, I have to write it down. And hence, my life is a pile of shreds of thoughts. (laughs) Do you keep a lot of journals? Uh, No, that would be a good idea. But I have (laughs) lots of pieces of paper everywhere, index cards, post-it notes, shreds of paper. So when you graduated college, did you go straight to the New York Times? I read that you went from copy girl Mm -hmm. to copy editor. And I'm wondering Uh how you even got there to begin with. I actually dropped out of college six times, so I am a complete college dropout, a chronic. Six times from the same school? No, from (laughs) one college in Michigan and several divisions of NYU once or twice each. It was just too rigid for me, and I was always a little bit of a, like, left of center kind of, like, freeform kind of person. I like to learn the way I like to learn. I like to actually teach myself things. So I had trouble with formal education in the old school, in the way it used to be done. Um, So it was just too much, like you've got to take pre-calculus math and you've got to take this and you've got to take that and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. I was defiant and I hated it. Um, I loved working, though, and I always had a job. And actually, my first job was in the uh, freshman film labs at NYU in the uh, School of the Arts, and I, I taught black and white printing in the dark rooms to the beginning of the freshman class because I loved stuff like that, like uh, black and white photography and developing. And So I was always looking for jobs. I w- it wasn't that I was lazy. It was that I you didn't want to try to constrain me, I guess. <laughs> so how did you first start working at the New York Times and how mm. did you rate, go through the ranks to end up being a copy editor? Well, I, I got a summer job as a copy girl or they used to just raise their hands, the editors in the newsroom and go, boy boy and hold something up. And that just meant a copy boy of whatever gender should show up and do the service. But yeah, I I took a summer job. And at that point, I was already disenchanted with, I don't know which incarnation of my college education it was. And I loved the job so much that I sort of put it out there that I would love to stay on and started going to school less and working more hours. And eventually the school just disappeared. So you had three significant experiences in in the working world, the work that you did at the New York Times, the work that you did at Newsday, and the work that you did with Martha Stewart Living. Yes. Um, But tucked into the middle of your years at the Times, you took a break to do a two-year editorship at Women's Sports Magazine, which I also found interesting given how much you talk about being so... The um, anti-jock. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, And so, and and this was with Billie Jean King. Yes. She She owned it, and it was the magazine of the Women's Sports Foundation which she had founded. And I I thought it was so interesting that you talk about how you realized even then it was the female audience that you were most interested in in reaching. Why so? Um, Because 
I had been a Girl Scout. No, because <laughs> because uh, it was what I knew. It was my point of view. And I, I mean, I do think, you know, that that word authenticity that I kind of have learned to loathe a little bit lately because it's become, I think, an overused word. But you understand what I mean when I, I say authenticity. And I think that we are most authentic when we tell a story that we understand and that maybe we've had some, it has some resonance for us that we have some experience with. And so for me, in, that, in those early years especially, it was, again, being in a group of women, communicating with other women, some of whom were like me, not jocks, but still wanted the health value or the fitness value or the empowerment value of sports or enjoyed it as a spectator. So the magazine had all those things in it. So it wasn't just for jocks. So when you went to Newsday, you were first the fashion editor. Oh, and that was awful. I mean, I went, I wanted to be the garden editor. I I left the Times to try to get to be the garden editor at Newsday. That was my hope. And they suddenly said, well, it turns out that job's not going to be open after all, but why don't you become the fashion editor? And I was like, oh, my God, no, not not that. Please, not that. So when did you, when did your love of gardening really begin? My grandmother was a great gardener, my mother's mother, so I was always exposed to it from early childhood. But then my father died when I was in my early 20s, and about when I was around 24, my mother got Alzheimer's. She was 49. And um, I came home to kind of help out and try to figure out what to do and ended up sort of around the house a lot, keeping an eye on things. I was working in the evenings. And for sort of self-imposed occupational therapy, I ended up cutting down shrubs out in the yard of the childhood, you know, my childhood home and getting some garden books and looking up, like, how to grow dahlias. I mean, it was like this crazy, I started getting plants and sticking them in holes, but it was very, 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 I hate to say, grounding. (laughs) It was very helpful to me. So I think it was that life crisis that drew me to gardening. And so that was in about 24, 25 years old. And were you always good at it? Did, no. did you because I <laughs> no. the gardening that I when I first started gardening, I, I had a black thumb. I mean everything I planted I killed. I always say to people when I lecture, you have to grow it to know it. You can't just look it up in a book. You you have to try it yourself, and really you should try it a couple or, th- or three times before you give up on a particular plant because they reveal themselves to you. I mean, they're living things, and sometimes it's not your fault. Sometimes it's like it was in bad shape when you adopted it. or Do you know what I mean? So you can't just say, I can't do this, I can't do that. If you baked your first cake and it didn't rise and you never baked another cake. You know, I mean, it could have been the wrong oven temperature, the wrong ingredients, the wrong pan, the wrong, you know, altitude. And so many things could have been against you. But most people don't give up after one cake. They try again. So in gardening, similarly. So you finally did become gardening editor at Newsday. How did that happen? I did. Well, um, the person who had the job, um, she did finally decide to leave. She actually went and became the garden editor of the New York Times, which, of course, is the reason I left the Times, because they weren't going to have that opening anytime in the foreseeable future, whatever. And and so so I I ended up becoming the garden editor. And that's where Martha Stewart saw your writing. Yes. You became a contributor at, at the magazine. And she brought you on board as the first gardening editor. Mm-hmm. I was when they were staffing up to go to a free. They were in a test phase, and then they were four times a year, and that's when I started doing the freelance writing. And then they brought me on when they were going to ten times a year. They they staffed up and formed actual departments for each subject right, so because you, you couldn't do that many issues without full time people. So you were really on, on the one of the founding editors. I think of... I was the thirty third employee of the company. So I don't know how many people there were in the editorial department then, five or ten or something. 
something. You know, so yeah, absolutely. Did you have any sense back then that the magazine and Martha herself would become the cultural phenomena that it ended up becoming? Mm-hmm. It's funny because I, I have to admit that when I first saw it, before I started writing for her, I didn't get it at all. I didn't get it, and and I Did, was. What part didn't you get? The the gardening um, part, or no? The... It was. It felt fancy to me, and and inaccessible to me at first, and I didn't get that the essential trait was the real pulse of it was the handmade, and as some of my ex colleagues would say, that we elevated the power of, you know, the handmade article, that it wasn't whether it was fancy or not fancy or how long it took to cook this dish versus that dish or decorate this tree versus that tree. It was the fact that the handmade article was the hub of the thing. And that, when once I sort of saw enough of it and got to know the brand better, it was like, oh, well, that's like me. I love to make things. And that's that was really what resonated with me. You stayed on your blog, which is an amazing, amazing blog, uh, awaytogarden.com, that as the company grew, out of the garden you did go. You became the head of the Internet Direct Commerce Division mm-hmm. in the first Internet heyday and managed the birth of MarthaStewart.com. Mm-hmm. Then you became the editorial director for the entire company over right. all its books and magazines and Internet. And you were the, you were the editor of Martha Stewart Living, the magazine. Mm-hmm. That was a big fat job you had there, Margaret. And I was a little tiny skinny person at the time. There You're wasn't still much a little, left. Little tiny skinny person. I was person. a lot skinnier than I am now. <laughs> I was I was worn down to a nubbin. It was oh. it was it was a lot. We worked hard, but it was worth it. It was it was worth it. But you say you you said on the website that your happiest years were those first years at Martha Stewart Living. Yes, as garden editor, traveling to the finest homemade <laughs> gardens, writing garden stories. What made you decide to give it up? I think one thing that happens is that we come of age, and for me it came in my 50s. I was 30-plus years in service, kind of behind the curtain, you know, the supporting character in, in my career for corporations, and I hadn't written in years. I started my career with writing as one of my things that I love to do. I had shelved that in the name of, you know, doing these other executive tasks. And so I think I knew I was going to not have enough time unless I did something gutsy. Plus, I really, and this is going to sound silly, but whatever, um, (laughs) I won't be the first time. I had been in love with this garden for 22 years that I'd been making this little piece of property in this funny little lopsided house in this town of 300 people in New York State. And I'd been driving back and forth to see my beloved like a a long-distance lover for 22 years. You know, couldn't wait to get to see him slash her slash it on Friday nights and then crying practically when when having to depart on Sunday or Monday. And that went on and on and on. And eventually, what happens in a long-distance relationship? Either you split up or somebody moves and the garden wouldn't move, right? So, I mean, that's really, truth be told, that's probably the biggest thing was the, the urge to write again. But also, I had never seen that garden in those 22 years. I had missed most of its moments of its life cycle each day, week, month, year. You know what I mean? Yes. I had seen very few of its subtle aspects, of its textures, of the finer points of it. So I couldn't stay away anymore. So you formally left the position that you had at the end of 2007. How did you make that decision? What went into making that decision? It was a year uh, of planning 
together, you know, and I talked to them about it and, you know, because there was a lot and going on. And it was totally on. amicable from yes, what I understand. Yes, and, and it, but, but it, it took a year because the house, you know, the windows rattled in the winter. And, you know, it was, it was a weekend place, a, a funny little jalopy of a weekend place with this big garden around it. And so I had to do some practical things to be able to inhabit it full time, um, you know, insulation and, you know, those types of things. So there was a lot of that that led up to it. Plus, I had to figure out how I was going to support myself because, you know, I couldn't, quote, retire or anything. So I had to figure out, well, can I freelance? What can I do? You know, kind of cultivate some of those relationships. And um, so it was a lot of planning, a lot of planning. And talk about the fear. (laughs) You know, Everyone else was more afraid than I was, and everyone around me said, aren't you afraid? Don't you think, do you really think you should do this in the, starting in the winter? Like, well, aren't you going to be depressed? Aren't you going to be lonely? And I am really, I crave solitude. I really crave solitude, and I don't know how I lived in the city all the years that I did. I mean, now in reflection, I'm like, are you kidding, Margaret? How did you do that? I literally can go days without speaking to anybody and be my most content. It's the most creative thing for me is quiet. It's silence and connection to nature is the most provocative for me. Have you been able to answer the question, why did you do it for so long? <laughs> I think that probably two primary factors. One, of course, is that we earn a living because, you know, that's why they call it work because they give you a paycheck, right? So there's that. But there's also, they don't just give you a paycheck. If you get the pats on the back and you get the esteem that you can derive from success, quote unquote, in a career, it's very easy, especially for a college dropout such as I am, who didn't get the esteem from that. I didn't do well there. I was a flop. Well, guess what? I was really good at working from that first job after leaving college. I always got the pat on the back and got the next promotion. So for me, I derived most of my sort of self-esteem, I think, from from my success or my facility for, you know, the, the fact that I was a good worker. So it's hard to let that go because then who are you, as I say in the book? Who who am I if I'm not mroach at marthastewart.com anymore? So what who have you discovered? I? <laughs> I'm a person who likes to spend a lot of time in pajamas. No, <laughs> I don't actually. I am too, I, I, actually. <laughs> they're actually more like yoga clothes than pajamas, but you know what I mean, yes. stretchy stuff. Who am I? I? Well, I'm a gardener first and foremost, and I'm, I'm part of the food chain. I'm part of the cycle that is outside my window or if I'm outside that I'm sitting in the middle of. You know, I'm just one of the creatures, and I love – Learning more about my, and not to sound silly, but, you know, learning more about where I fit into that and um, taking more and more lessons from the other creatures that, you know, like, for instance, have you ever been in a relationship a little too long, whether it's a business one or a personal one or whatever, stayed a little too long at the fair, as some of the songs say, right? Well, I have. But you know what? Birds don't do that. When it's time to migrate, when the signal comes, they fly away. They don't say, oh, well, you know, I really like this tree. I think I'll stay here. They don't do that, right? So, you know, there's a lot of, and that's a very simple example, but there's a lot of, like, great inspiration for me in the behavior of animals and of, you know, the seasons and so forth. So I'm kind of, I'm happy there. I want to talk very specifically about your your marvelous book, And I Shall Have Some Peace There, Trading in the Fast Lane for My Own Dirt Road. 
You talk about how gardening is your spiritual practice and Mm -hmm. your life partner, and you refer to falling in love at first sight with your house when you saw it, when you first saw it 25 years ago. I should have brought you a picture, and then you would think, ooh, she's nuts. Well, you (laughs) you, you described it that when you saw it, you felt it was a sad little house. It was. And yet you fell madly in love with it. Yeah. And now the gardening and being there is your spiritual practice and your life partner. So how did that evolve? How did that love become this gigantic part of your life? Well, you know, there is that thing, power of place, right? And so it doesn't have to be a majestic place. You know, it doesn't have to be, you know, Stonehenge or whatever to have a power. The house is on a very steep hillside, and I don't know what spoke to me about that, but that it just did. The piece of the rugged sort of spot appealed to me. But I also think that I could tell that, like, that it was a Victorian-era house, but it was just this little funny house, and it had all this, like, siding, like, stuffed on top of it. And it's like the poor thing was, like, suffocated with, quote, home improvements from previous owners. So it had no character left except this one little piece of gingerbread trim. And I thought, I guess that's like me. I I was so struck by that. I really think that I was behind the curtain. I was hidden I was a supporting player in something, and my creativity or myself didn't shine through as much as it might have if I had taken a different path. And I'm not regretting. I'm just saying it is what it is. So the house, it was a perfectly good little house with some funny little trim and this and that, but that was all hidden under, like, layers and layers and layers and layers of junk, you know? So it was in stripping all that away from the house and eventually from myself that we ended up in the same place, literally the house and I, and also in the same condition, which is a little more out in the open. Both of us are a little more out in the open now, if, if, if you know what I mean. Yes. Can you, because we're on the radio, I don't know. Uh-oh, we're how, on the radio? You didn't tell me we were taping this. <laughs> <laughs> I would love it if you could try to describe your garden. It's a few different things. It's definitely a collector's garden, as in it has a lot of rare plants or plants people haven't seen, especially in large numbers before, because I've been buying plants, rare plants, for a long time. So it has that sort of a collection kind of a feeling. It's kind of tilt-a-whirl, like that ride in the um, you know, an amusement park where it's like you're always a little lopsided. Like you don't want to try to push a full wheelbarrow on most of my property because it'll tip over and all the stuff will fall out. Everything's amoebic because you can't make straight lines. You can't have like Versailles axes on a -a tilt-a-whirl piece of this undulating, very female. It's like hummocky. The hillside's like hummocky shaped. And so everything is like amoebic and all the beds are tilted. So it's not symmetrical in any way. And I would say that it's sensuous because... I let a lot of things just self-sow and plant themselves and things are sticking into the pathways and they touch you, you know, and I can fit through and I know how to get there. But everyone else is like, how am I supposed to get here? You know, you have to go in and out of the plants. I like that. So people um, people are a little surprised sometimes. <laughs> but I've got a lot of plants. And it's on two and a half acres. It's two and a half acres. It's, including it's, the house. Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Including the house. But it's... it's um, it's it's also full of animals. I mean, full yes, of animals. Yes, you talk about that quite a lot in, full in your of animals, book. Yeah, and you talk about the frogs, and you talk about the coyotes, and you talk about everybody. It's it's quite extraordinary. I wanted to ask you to describe something else for me. I was wondering if it would be possible to describe a typical day in your life 
in 2006 or 2007 and a typical day in your life now? Well, 2006, 2007 or any of the years before that, that I was working easy, I would just um, either the night before or that morning check with whoever the assistant was who was either working for me or the department I was in, depending on what job I had, to see where I was supposed to be and just do what they said. So it was like 8.15, you have to be here. 8.45, you have to be here. 9.30, you have this meeting. So-and-so needs you to approve this. Don't forget to stop at this place. Okay, so it was rigid, scheduled. There was a big infrastructure to help me keep that together. Now, in my current life, I get up and I immediately go to work, really. I have tea, <laughs> one cup of green tea, <laughs> and I make breakfast and I go to work. So my, my typical day is a combination of, and this is a weird combination, of totally engrossed in the computer and totally engrossed in the outdoors. So that's my, like, push-pull thing now is, like, do I want to get sucked deeper into the rabbit hole of the Internet or do I want to let myself go outside to the real rabbit holes and see how to <laughs> fend those little devils off, right? Do you, right. Know, do you know what I mean? Like, yes. where should I really be, in or out? But both are very um, engaging. I work probably more hours than I did. Technically, I'm on duty more hours than I used to be in my old life because I'm trying to support myself, first of all. Also, I have so many ideas, I don't know what to do with them. That's what happens when you finally let the lid off, by the way, if anyone, (laughs) like me, had not been doing their own art or whatever you want to call it for a long time. When you finally let the lid off, oh my goodness, it's the Pandora's box thing. Like everything was flying out and you can't put the lid back on. I find that so interesting because one of the first tasks when you moved into the house full time was to organize the <laughs> Tupperware <laughs> and Rubbermaid with the lids and the bottoms. <laughs> and so that's so, it's such an interesting metaphor of sorts in but terms I, of... And it really was starting with simple. It's like clean. And you know how when, when you're lost, and I was lost in the beginning because I had that rigidity. I was like, I had a schedule every day that someone else constructed. And they told me where to be. And they said, it's time to get your lunch. What do you want today? Now, and I could call the help desk for help. Right. Now, I'm the help desk. I'm the, you know, the supply closet. I fill the supply closet or not. I'm the chief cook and bottle washer. I'm the photographer. I'm the photoshopper. I'm the writer. I'm the editor. I'm the technician. I'm the book writer. I'm the, you know, you name it. I'm the, I will mow the lawn. You know, that takes seven hours a week of mowing, you know, for instance, as I'm gardening. So I have a lot of jobs now, and that's where I get a little lost because, again, that pull between my indoor world and my outdoor world and who should get which hours of which day, and so much of it's weather dependent. So I can't say I'm going to write on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday next week, and I'm going to work in the yard the other day. I have to look at the forecast and hope that, you know what I mean? I have to go with the flow. And that's, that's hard. Over the course of the book, you meet with a lot of spiritual advisors to... <laughs> I could use a few more, I think, at this point. <laughs> Who can't? <laughs> to, to help <clears throat> educate you and inspire you. Yes. And I, I'm wondering, do you think that we are living in a time where it's somehow prestigious to be busy all the time or it's somehow more socially acceptable to be busy? I think that we tell children to take a time out when they start screaming in the supermarket or spinning out and looking like they're becoming apoplectic. But we don't do that for ourselves. Adults don't 
give themselves. I mean, we ask people, say they're going on vacation because they need some quiet time or whatever, but we don't really. We then go on some trekking adventure or something. You know what I mean? We just do more and more and more and more and more. And I think that silence and complete stillness are so undervalued in our contemporary society and so much a part of any life forms really thriving, you know, like maximum, you know, wellness. Because, I mean, look, plants, they have an active growing period and then they have a dormant cycle. Like most things have an active, you know, they have a time that they reproduce and they have a time that they don't and they have a time that, you know, there's, you have to rest sometimes. <laughs> so I, I'm a multitasker of the absolute worst order. I mean, crazy. I've, I've said many times, my, my best friend says, I'm not type, Margaret's not type A, she's type triple A. <laughs> and, and it really is true. I am, you yeah. know, I am, I am that way. But I have learned to punctuate and intersperse, you know, make sure that I get up and I go and I look for, go on some little adventure. Do you know what I mean? To, because otherwise, we'd become crazy. I was really struck by how you describe gardening in your book. You talk about it as coming face to face with powerlessness. <laughs> and, yeah. and I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about what, what that means. In our careers, if we, quote, succeed, it's because we kind of go, 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 and we make things happen. But it's about control. So it's about exerting control. But if Or you, the illusion of, right? Correct. Correct. I mean, like the mandate is is to go control that thing, turn this into this, you know, make make the outcome this from here's the raw materials, turn it into this. Well, you know what? There are forces bigger than ourselves at work in the office. Yes. You know, we can't control a lot of things in the office, but go outside, go into nature, you know, look at a lot of the Northeast, which has been underwater this year. I mean, no matter how good a gardener the people in, you know, the Catskills or Vermont or whatever, they didn't get a harvest this year. It's bigger than them, you know. And this is the thing is that we are just a speck. We're just a little one part of a food chain, one part of a cycle. We're not um, the engineer of it. We're just one creature in a food chain, you know, like a lot yeah. of uh, millions of other ones. And and so I love the humbling nature. And I say, you know, that's why it's no wonder so much of gardening is done on your knees because it is really prayer-like. It's very, um, you know, there's like a supplication or, you know, a meditation to it that you're really recognizing that you are part of this earth, you know, the, of, of what's going on from the earth up, you know, because the bottom of the food chain, of course, is in the soil and you know, all the microorganisms and so forth. So I like that. I like things being out of control. I like the failure. Because if I kept thinking for the rest of my life, you know, that I could dominate everything, I mean, it's just going to burn me out. It's just and it's not true. No, it isn't. And I think that a lot of people do feel like they're on that path or that they try to get on that path. Um, one thing you say in the book that also resonates with me is that the one thing that you know for certain about gardening is that things will die. Absolutely. And I think Absolutely. That, that's sort of life too, right? Right. And to me, it's one of those like epiphany kind of, you know, we're, if we keep struggling against, like we do in our career, struggling against the facts of life. In the garden, you can't really struggle against the facts of life. You can try to impose world domination you can try to make everything grow that doesn't want to grow, but it will not feel like a garden. It won't be sensuous. It won't be authentic. It won't feel alive to me, you know. 
It's okay to have some wrinkles out there. (laughs) (laughs) Um, One of the best lines in the book, one of the, first of all, your book, in in as much as it's incredibly uh, touching and heartbreaking and beautiful, it's also really funny. You have a great sense of humor. (laughs) And and the funniest line in the book, I think, is the statute of limitations has expired on most of our childhood traumas. And that was a wonderful line. I just, I've been thinking about that for the last couple of weeks. Um, You also conclude the book by talking a little bit about May Sartre. And you mentioned her book, Plant Dreaming Deep. She wrote this book in 1968. And Mm -hmm. you talk about the line, we are all myth makers about ourselves. Yes. And I'm wondering if you can, in in this journey that you've taken over these last three years, I understand the the myth making part. But what are some of the truths that you found to be most relevant? That even without a job... Even without the esteem or the, um, you know, VP, EVP, SVP, the whatever, you know, MD, whatever the heck your credentials are, even without that, that I still am Margaret. And in fact, I'm more Margaret since I've shed that extra stuff and stopped living under the guise of that. Um, so, so I think there's that. I think that it's a very risky path, although I took it and I, quote, succeeded at it for a long time, to stifle your own personal creativity for a long period of time in trade-off for success, for money or for, you know, a promotion, you know, bigger job or whatever. It's tricky because you do run out of time. And so I'm very, very, very aware that I need to indulge myself in the time each day, each week, each month for some of my harebrained schemes, you know, to go out and take pictures, even though I don't actually know how to be a photographer. But it's like it pleases me, like let myself go out with a camera and do it. Let myself write, even if it's not something that I can sell. Absolutely. Yeah. Just to like keep the lid off, not try to put it back on. I suppose those are for me the two biggest things. And of course, there's the trite, the really trite one that, you know, like, well, they say money can't buy you love, but money can actually buy you a lot of things that are very, very important. And I am afraid that I, like I think most people in the modern, the post-war world, <laughs> the post-World um, War II world, I mean, because <laughs> there's plenty of wars now, aren't yeah, there? Yeah, um, You know, grew up believing that prosperity was a key value. And it's all, it's all great to have, you know, to be able to have some money in the bank or whatever, but it's not the main goal of living. I'm sure of that now, and I... I'm sometimes nervous uh, in my current life about the economy, but then all I have to do is look out the window or go outside, and I reassure myself that I have something much more valuable. And again, I know that sounds like silly and sugar-coated, but, um, and it's been said much more eloquently by many people before me, but it really is true. And the thought that I almost let my connection to the natural world be severed or lost, you know, that I had so little thin of a thread you know, those 36 hours or 48 hours a week that I went to that place and that it kept me whole. <laughs> so it's important. It's really important to, to have that time, to, to, to go to that place. And it doesn't have to be a place in the country. It doesn't have to be a garden. It could be a painting studio. It could be, a, you know what I mean? It could yeah, be I think a it, kitchen. It's People, about going you know I mean? into your heart. Whatever it is. Yeah. It doesn't, it, volunteer, it, it, whatever it is that, that is the thing you say, I don't have time. I don't have time. I don't have time for this. I don't have time for that. I mean, that's all I ever used to say in my old job. I don't have time. I can't do that. I don't have time. 
you really need to make some time. It could be one day a week, but you need to make some time. Otherwise, the lid will blow off. Trust me, it will blow off at some point. Well, I think if you were to ask the question, who am I, if not mroach at marthastewart.com now, I I could answer that for you. A remarkable and inspiring role model. Oh, well, that's very sweet. Thank you. Thank you, Margaret. You can find out more about Margaret Roach at www.awaytogarden.com. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is recorded at the Masters in Branding Studio at the School of Visual Arts in New York City. It is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica and research by Jen Simon. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store.